how we got our Bible today, actually knowing why it's reliable. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. There's going to be three sections we're going to look at. The first is, what does the Bible say about itself? How does the Bible refer to itself? What type of authority does it give to itself? The second one we're going to look at is the canon, or the books that we have in the Bible. How do we know we have the right books in the Bible? Why did why does the church reject some books and accept other books? The third thing we're going to look at is the transmission of the text. How do we know that we don't have a corrupted version of those books? How do we know that the Bible we're reading from today is the same writings that they had when they were first written? And so before we get into all those things, let's go ahead and go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read 16 through 21. Here Peter writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my son, beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so what we see here is Peter is going against an objection that's often brought up against Christianity. And it's not a new objection. This objection was brought up in the time of the apostles. These are just cleverly devised tales. These are just mythologies. These are just stories you guys are telling. And so Peter wants to ease our minds. He's telling us, no, these aren't cleverly devised stories. These are things that he's eyewitness to. He saw them take place. And so in this, what Peter's going to give to us is an assurance of the scriptures, an assurance of the things that were written. And it's important that we understand that this is applying here for Peter to the Old Testament, but it applies both to the Old and the New Testament, that there's a certain way that these writings came about that is different than every other written word. These writings came about in such a way that God is speaking to us, not man. And so let's go back through, starting at verse 16, and see exactly what Peter's saying and how we can trust that our scriptures are, in fact, from God. Again, back in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, again, this is a common accusation against Christians. What you believe is a myth. What you believe is cleverly devised tales. And in fact, I'm online a lot and in messages and stuff online when I'm talking about God or, or speak against evolution, things like that. Oftentimes there's nothing against my arguments. They just come back at me with, your God is a myth. They, they completely and outright just disregard everything I say because, well, my God's a myth. I'm just, I'm just fooled. So nothing I say has any value. And that's how the world views it. And again, that's how people in Peter's time viewed it. What you're saying is simply myths. It's tales. Your God is no different than the gods of the Norse people. Your God is no different than the Greek gods. Your God is no different than the Egyptian gods. They're all fake. They're all mythologies. It's just men coming up with stories, and they're devising them to gain control over the population. You might have heard the popular phrasing that um, 
religion is the opiate of the masses. It's just a way to, to quell people, to keep them in line. That's all religion is. Your God is a myth. Your God is a cleverly devised tale. And so Peter tells us, don't worry, that's, that's not true of our God. But how does Peter know? How can Peter make that claim? What does Peter know that we don't? What did Peter see that we didn't see? Well, Peter actually saw the Christ. He was an eyewitness to it. He was there when these events took place. And it's not that he is speaking of things he doesn't know. He's speaking of the very things he knows. And so what he sees is that he knew his Old Testament. He knew the prophecies. And then he saw those prophecies fulfilled in Christ. He was there for all of it. And so Peter, as an eyewitness, saw the Christ. He saw the risen Lord. He saw him die. He saw him buried. He saw him raised from the dead. He saw the miracles. He was there every step of the way. And so he's accounting to us that we can know those prophecies are certain. And it's important to know here that if those prophecies were not fulfilled, if we had the Old Testament and not the New, and all those prophecies went by and nothing ever came true of them, we could call them cleverly devised tales. Because if people are saying things are going to come true and they don't, obviously they made them up. But what Peter's saying is, no, they weren't made up. I saw it take place. He's an eyewitness to it. Now, the, the world rejects Christ still, and we need to take a look at that for a second, because what oftentimes will happen is you'll tell people, well, we do know Christ raised from the dead, and they'll say, where's your evidence? We have the eyewitnesses. They wrote their accounts. They were there for it. At one point, there was more than 500 people at once that saw the risen Lord, and they'll say, well, that's not proper evidence. And they'll essentially make a standard of evidence that, to this day, we wouldn't be able to verify anything. All of our evidence is by eyewitness. You have to have people to eyewitness things. We wouldn't even be able to know that Abraham Lincoln was a president if we go by that standard. Why? Because none of us were there to see it. How are we going to verify it? There's no video. There's no pictures. It's just in writings and words that people saw him, and they verified that he was the president at the time. And here we are hundreds of years later, and no one denies that Abraham Lincoln was the president. But then we go back to Christ, and we had eyewitnesses to the things he did, and people go, well, they're just lying about it. All those thousands of people that saw him, they're all lying about it. And they say eyewitness accounts aren't enough. And so the truth is that there were eyewitnesses to this. Peter was one of them. And what he's doing is he's verifying what we know to be true about the Christ. We weren't there, so we rely on that witness. So he continues in verse 17. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so again, Peter was there. He saw Christ in his glory. He saw all the events take place. And so he wants to relay that truth to us. He's going to let us know exactly what took place and what it means for us. And so he continues in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What is Peter saying here? Well, he's saying, we had the prophecies, and we could doubt them at the time because none of them came true yet. But now there's eyewitness. Now it's here before us. Now it's taken place. And so 
Now that the prophecies are fulfilled, we can be more certain than ever that what God said all along was true. The promises were certain. How do we know? Because the prophecies were fulfilled. What God promised through the Messiah took place with Christ. And so we are more sure. And now there is a lamp shining in the darkness. Because you see, at one point in our sin, we're left in that darkness. We had no hope. We had no joy. We were without God. But God came and he revealed himself through his son. He revealed himself through the prophets and he revealed himself through the apostles. So that we now have a lamp, a shining light guiding us to the truth. And so we cannot let go of that. We cannot throw that aside. How foolish we would be to have the truth verified in front of us. And yet we would reject it. And so it's not cleverly devised tales. It's not something made up. But the prophecies took place. Peter saw it. He witnessed it. And so he goes on in verse 20 to tell us how this was able to come about. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, these aren't tales. In fact, these men didn't author in the same way another author writes. We can think of great authors. We can look at C.S. Lewis. We can look at Tolkien. And they wrote cleverly devised tales. And they know that their tales are cleverly devised tales. You read Lord of the Rings, and it's an amazing book. But no one goes to the Lord of the Rings and thinks, what is God telling me from this book? No one goes to anything C.S. Lewis wrote and thinks, what is God telling me in these books from C.S. Lewis? Because those men, from their own free will, wrote these books, and they devised these tales, and they're good tales, they're fun tales, but no one treats them as scripture. The reason we treat the scripture as scripture is because they were not devised by men. The words themselves were inspired by God. And that is how the prophecies were able to come true. You see, if Isaiah was out there in the middle of Israel and he decided, I want to write on behalf of God, but God's not speaking to me. Every word he's going to write is going to be a lie. Because he doesn't know what God is revealing. But if God actually spoke to Isaiah, then Isaiah is going to be able to tell us things that he would not know without the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. And so this is how the scriptures are written. Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Not by man's mind, but by God's mind. And yes, he used the means of men writing down. Because that was his, in his desired way to bring about his writings. But what he did is he passed this to men by the Holy Spirit. And so this is why we treat the scriptures different than any other book. And so the scriptures are authenticating themselves by their authority because they are from God himself. And Paul agrees with this. If we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, this is a verse I'm sure you guys have heard a lot. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good now, normally when we go to this passage, we usually focus on the second part of it, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's usually the brunt of the message that we get from this passage. But we also have to pay attention to why it's true. Why are we going to go to the scriptures for all these things? Well, because the scriptures are inspired by God. You see, it's the God who created the universe, the God who created all things, the God who created you. He has spoken. 
and he is the one who knows all things. And so if we're going to learn how to live in this life, if we're going to have teaching that is profitable to us, it's going to come from that one God. And so the scriptures are inspired by God, which makes them profitable to us. So when we're going to the scriptures, we're not simply going to these tales of men. We're going to the very words of God that he spoke through his prophets and through his apostles so that we can be certain of how we are to live in this life according to God's ways. Now, the same is true of both the Old and the New Testament. One thing that people will uh, accuse of the New Testament is they'll, they'll accept Old Testament canon, but they'll say that the New Testament is kind of more devised by man, that the early church didn't have a canon. The early church didn't have the scripture. But what's false about that is that the early church knew what they were getting. They knew that the apostles had the same authority as the prophets. And the apostles even claimed such. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. Um, I put verse 20, it's actually 19 and 20. So it says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And how is this household built? Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the message throughout the New Testament. It's not that we just have the authoritative word of the of the of the prophets, but we now have the authoritative word of the apostles. The church is built up on both. And so when the apostles are writing their words, they know they're speaking on behalf of God. They know that what they are writing is authoritative, that it's the word of God, and they treat their writings as such. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 37, Paul writes this, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commands. Now, I can guarantee you there's not going to be any sane Christian today that writes that in a letter to anyone. Know that I'm writing you the Lord's commands. What we're going to do is we're going to quote the scriptures. We're going to quote the Bible and say, here's the Lord's commands. It's from the Bible. But Paul says, the words I'm speaking to you are from the Lord. They are his commands. And in fact, in the Great Commission, when, when Jesus is sending out the apostles, he tells them, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. And so who has that authority to go out and say what the Lord commanded? It's the apostles. And so the early church, when they go to these writings, they knew they were going to the word of God from the beginning of the church. No one had to gather these together and say, well, we think these are authoritative and those aren't. It was authoritative by the fact that the apostles were the ones writing it. The very eyewitnesses to what Jesus had done were the ones writing the book. They were the ones inspired to write it. They were the ones writing the scriptures. And so both Old and New Testament from the apostles and the prophets are the authoritative word of God. God spoke through these men so we can know what God is doing. And we can even go to Jesus. Christ is the cornerstone, and so if we want to think of the scriptures in a way, we want to think of them in the same way that Jesus thought of the scriptures. And so in Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus referencing scriptures. Here in Matthew 19, there's a question about divorce. And so they come to Jesus, can we divorce for any reason or do we need a reason to divorce? And so this is how Jesus answers in verses 4 and 5. It says, and he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, you might have missed how important this is. How does Jesus view the scriptures? Because what he doesn't say is he doesn't say, did you read what Moses wrote? He doesn't say, did you read what someone devised in the past? He says, have you read what he who created them said? What he who created them did? You see, Jesus knew that Moses was speaking the words of God. And if we just think about this for a second, it makes sense. How does Moses know what God was thinking when he created man and woman? How does Moses know that? He can't know it. It's impossible for a man to know what God did because Moses wasn't there at the creation. Moses is thousands of years later. So how does Moses know what God thought at the moment of creation? The Holy Spirit inspired him to write those words. And so Jesus knows this, and so he says that it is God that said this, even though it's Moses who wrote it. And so we want to have the same view of the scriptures that Jesus had of the scriptures. Over and over again, I'm not going to go over all the examples, but Jesus constantly refers to the scriptures this way. He's going back to them over and over and over again because truth comes from God's word. It is through his apostles and through his prophets that God has chosen to speak to us. And so in John 17, 17, he says this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus knows that the word of God is truth. The God who created all things, who knows truth, is able to speak truth to us to reveal himself to us, and to sanctify us in that truth. That's why we go to the Bible every week. That's why we read from the scriptures. That's why we treat them as authoritative, because it's got the authority that God has given to it. And for a moment here, let's just consider the alternative. What if we didn't have God's word? What if there was corruption? What if what we have today isn't reliable? Well, then none of us would have hope, because we wouldn't be able to know what God said. This is God's determined means of giving to us his word. And so Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. If we don't have the word of Christ, if the Bible's corrupted, then we don't have that word. And we don't have hope, because we cannot come to faith by hearing a false teaching. So if we don't have God's word, which many people, and even there are Christians out there who will make this claim that we don't have the word of God, then there's no hope. We cannot come to faith in God without his word. And so God preserves his word in these writings for us. So through all the generations, we can know what God has said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is how the Bible refers to itself. It references within itself its own authority. And now people might push back on that. How can, the, how can one source be its own authoritative source? Well, we have to remember that the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of books. The Bible doesn't have one author. It is a collection of authors written over thousands of years, we have many different prophets, many different apostles writing the scriptures. And so we see how they reference one another. We see how they speak of one another. 
and we see how they authenticate one another. The prophecies are authenticated by the word of the apostles because they saw it happen. They're the eyewitnesses. And again, going back to Peter, that's what he's verifying for us. We can be more certain that this is God's word because it actually happened. It actually came about. It's not a cleverly devised tale, but it is truth. So without the scriptures, we could not know God. Without the scriptures, we could not verify that Jesus is the Christ. And without the scriptures, we would not know of the salvation that we have in Christ. But praise God, he has given to us his word. Praise God that his word has withstood the test of time, that it's passed down to us, and that we can read his words and know what he has done for us. And so overall, there becomes a, a concept that Christians have coined called sola scriptura. And what this teaches is that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the believer. And so I'll break that down just a little bit for you. And what it means to be the sole infallible rule of faith is that's the only thing that instructs our faith that is without error. And that's because God spoke those words. He inspired those words. So there are other rules of faith for the believer. And for you guys, I'm standing in front of you and I'm preaching to you. I am a rule of faith for you because I am preaching to you about your faith. I am encouraging and building up your faith. But I'm not infallible. I can make mistakes. The same with Chris and the same with any other person that preaches. Anywhere in the world and anywhere through time. We're all fallible. We all make errors. So the only infallible rule of faith is the scriptures. Not the church, not man. The scriptures are the only one because they're the only one that is truly and completely inspired by God. And so again, that's why we go to the scriptures over and over and over again, because that's where we're going to find truth. And again, that's how we're going to also define error. How do we know someone's an error? They contradicted the scriptures. And so it is the only infallible rule of faith. So we have, we have people that are going to bring the word. We have throughout church history, we have the um, creeds and the confessions and all those things that are fine for us to read through and learn from and understand. But the thing that validates those creeds and confessions and the preachers is that they correlate to what the word of God is actually saying. That is the only infallible rule of faith. So we have that understanding now that the Bible is inspired by God. It is his word. It is authoritative for our lives. But now we have to look at the other objections that people have. What about the canon? How do we know that the books we have in the Bible are the books that we should be going to? Because weren't there other writings? Weren't there other apostles? What about Philip? What about Thomas? What about these other people that were there at the time? Didn't they write things? Well, it's possible that they did, but those writings didn't survive. And if they didn't survive, that's then God's will for those writings to not survive. So we do have the surviving writings from these men that we can know is authoritative. But there were some other writings out there that people will look to and point to and say, see, you guys threw out these writings and you only accepted these ones because you wanted to tailor your faith according to what you believed at the time. And so a quick historical point. The church was persecuted for the first about 300 years of its existence in Rome. And it wasn't until the 4th century that there was kind of a peace over Rome for Christians. And there was uh, a gathering at Nicaea where they finally were, the church was finally able to gather as a whole and they discussed a lot of different topics. And one thing that came out of that was a completed canonical Bible. And so what people will point to is they'll point to the 4th century and see that's when the Bible came about. That's when the church defined what was in the canon 
And you guys don't actually follow all the original writings. You only follow some of the original writings. And so there's an accusation that the church tailored what we know today as the Bible and that we don't actually have all of God's authoritative word. And so how do we answer that? Well, the first thing that's important to note is that the canon of Scripture is largely treated as a historical topic, but really it's not historical, it's a theological topic. Again, going back to what we just discussed, it's got to be God's word inspired by God. So how can someone come along and say, I think this is inspired and this isn't? I, as a man, can't do that. I can't come up with the Bible on my own. It has an authority or it doesn't. And so when we look at the canon of Scripture, we have to approach it theologically, not historically. Although we're going to see as well that history backs up the fact that it's a theological topic, not a historical topic. Um, and the second point to make is that there was no point in church history where canon was ever actually defined. This is a, a this is a claim that the Catholic Church tries to make that the church defines the canon. This is a, a claim that the world tries to make that the church defined the canon. But when you actually look back through history, you will actually see that no one actually defined the canon. It was simply known that these were the scriptures all the way from the early days of the church. And so we're going to break down the Old and New Testament because there's some books in both Old and New that are kind of disputed and people bring up questions about. And the Old Testament's a little bit easier to go through because by and large, people agree on the books of the Old Testament. And the reason for that is that um, the scriptures were kept in the temple. You have to remember before Christianity, there, there was Judaism, and so they had the temple, and the scriptures were considered sacred. They're kept in the temple, and they're preserved there. And so that's one reason we have a very well-preserved Old Testament canon, is that it was held up in the temple and regarded as sacred. And so... There's also this period between the writings of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ. It's about 400 years, and there's a wide acknowledgement that God was silent in that 400 years. And so there are a series of books called the Apocryphal Works. These include things like the Maccabees or Enoch and a few other books that are out there that if you open up a Catholic Bible, you'll see that they include those in their Bible. And so those were written in this intertestamental period where all of Israel acknowledged God has been silent. No prophets have spoken. And so those books were not put in the temple because it was very clear that these were not from God. Now, there's helpful information in those books. It kind of gives you a pretty good insight into what Israel was thinking at the time. There's some historical works in there. There's some theological works in there. But overall, there's an acknowledgement that these are not Scripture. These are not kept in the temple. And so we're not going to count them as Scripture. And so... You might be wondering, well, why do people still go to them? Why, why does the Catholic Church include these scriptures in their Bible? Well, it's important to know that the canonization of these books for the Catholics didn't happen until the 16th century. That's 1,500 years after Christ. These books that were written before Christ are finally considered canon for the Catholic. And so why did they do that? Why in the 1500s did they finally canonize these books? Well, there was a small movement called the Protestant Reformation where Protestantism broke off from Catholicism and the point of that was to go back to the scriptures. And so there was a council called the Council of Trent that gathered together to oppose the, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the disputes they had was over which books were being brought into the church. And so the reformers recognized that there were these apocryphal books that many of the Catholic churches were starting to treat as authoritative 
And they pointed out, well, no, the church has never considered these authoritative. And so they pointed back to the historical facts of these books. And so to counter that, the Council of Trent canonized the books. And so us as Protestants, we don't go with what the church says. We go with what is truly authoritative by God. And so it's very clear that since prophets did not speak these words, they're not authoritative. And so the way these books have been treated throughout church history, they've not ever been banned in churches, they've never been pushed out of churches, but there's been a recognition from the beginning that these apocryphal works were intertestamental books and they're more for knowledge about historical events and things like that than they really are about getting God's word. And so it's like if someone came along and brought a MacArthur book. John MacArthur can write some amazing books. We can read through it. We can study it. That's called, that, was, that was great. We learned a lot from that. But no one's going to say, okay, let's add this to our Bible. That's essentially what they did with the apocryphal books. It, it's books that they're fine to read. We can probably learn some stuff from them. But then we set them aside and say, those aren't scripture. This is. And so that's why we exclude them and the Catholic Church adds them. And so again, that's a little bit more cut and dry than the New Testament. We get to the New Testament period and we don't have prophets speaking, but we have the apostles speaking. And again, here, this is something that people don't acknowledge. When you, when you don't want the Bible to be true, you disregard the authority of an apostle to write scripture and you begin to come up with other methods of determining what is in the canon. And so for us, we know that the New Testament is authoritative. And so we accept the writings of the apostles as authoritative. And so the early church largely agreed on the canon of Scripture. And for this, we again need a little bit of historical context. Again, think back to the church being persecuted in Rome. The church isn't safe in Rome, especially at the times of the writings of the New Testament. There was a lot of persecution against the church, which built up and built up, and especially around 70 AD, there was a massive amount of persecution. And then for the next 300 years, persecution was kind of off and on, it wasn't persistent through that whole time period. But overall, there's a ton of persecution of the church. There is persecution, yep. So another thing is that there was no printing press. If you wanted a book, you copied the book yourself. You borrowed it for someone, you had your own stuff to write on, you copied it over, and you gave them back the original, and you kept your copy. That is how books were distributed. It's also important to note that there was no gathering of these New Testament books just yet. The Old Testament had already been gathered, but the New Testament is still in the process of being written, and so there is no gathering of the New Testament. Essentially what happens is as these letters are sent out, the Gospels are sent out, the letters from Paul and the other apostles are sent out, well, churches want these letters. So they copy them and they send them around, and so they're all over the place. They're sent over to, to Europe, they're sent over to Asia, they're in the Middle East, they're in Africa, they're all over the place just being distributed out to all the churches. And so you might be at a church that has the Gospels, but you don't have any of the letters of Paul. You might be at a church that has some of the letters of Paul, but you don't have any of Peter's and John's and, and so on. No one has the complete writings just yet. And so uh, what's interesting to see, though, is that when you go back to the early church, there are people known as church fathers, men such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and many others who are writing about um, God. They, they continue to write letters to churches and send them out and things like that. And when you see the books that they reference, well, they're referencing the exact same books we use. They're referencing the Gospels. They're referencing Paul's letters. And so there's a wide agreement amongst all these churches that these are the authoritative letters because they're from the apostles. 
before there was any canonization, before there was any gathering of these books, the church used these exact same books that we use today as authoritative words from God. And so out of the 27 New Testament books, there's 22 of them that were widely agreed upon as scripture. And you can see reference after reference after reference from the early church back to these books to make their case about salvation through Christ. And so those 22 books are the four Gospels, Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. The books that took a little bit longer to be recognized are 2 and 3 John, James, Jude, and 2 Peter. And those are kind of the smaller books. A lot of them are like one or two pages long. And so it's harder to validate that these were actually from the apostles. And so there was some skepticism of, did the apostles really write this? And so eventually those were added in or accepted in as well. But really, the early church had these writings. These are the ones the early church used. No one had to come around and tell them, by the way, these are the authoritative writings. It was self-evident. Once they were written, someone saw that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians when they visited Corinth, and they said, that's a great writing. I'm going to copy that. I'm going to bring that to my church. They saw a letter from Peter, and they said, that's excellent. I want to bring that over to my guys so we can learn from it as well. And simply the church knew the authority of these writings and distributed them widely all over the known world. And so that is how the canon came about. It wasn't because someone decided it to be canon. It's because they knew these were the authoritative words of God. Remember, it's the apostles and the prophets. It's their writing on behalf of God. And that's why this is a theological topic, not a historical one, though the history backs up the case that it's theological. So the early church never decided on what the canon was, but they rather, what they did was they recognized the canon. They recognized the authority of the apostles and treated those writings as sacred. And so we also have to recognize that there was an expectation of a canon. The Old and New Testaments are speaking of the covenants God had. And so the Old is speaking of the Old Covenant, the New is speaking of the New Covenant. And every covenant comes with its terms and conditions. Every covenant comes with its written word. And so the Old Testament had its, or the Old Covenant had the Old Testament, which attested to it. And now the New Covenant has the New Testament, which attests to this New Covenant. So there is an expectation that there would be a, a, a canon of Scripture. Now, there's still the accusation that, well, there's these other writings that you reject. What about Thomas's letter? What about Philip's letter? What about these other things that James wrote or that John wrote or that Peter wrote? Because in the 1940s, there was uh, writings found, and they're called the Gnostic Gospels. And so the accusation, again, is that, well, sure, you have those authoritative words, but why would you leave out these other authoritative words from the other guys that were there too? Why don't you trust what they wrote? And so the accusation is that we've altered the scriptures, that we've changed what we want to believe because we've left out these Gnostic Gospels. And so what are these Gospels? Why don't, doesn't the church ever has, why has the church never recognized them as authoritative? Well, there's a few problems with these Gospels. First, there's no evidence that these writings were early to the church. There's no evidence that they were written in the first century, and in fact, many of them are from late second century at the earliest. Second, it's clear that no Christians accepted them. When you look at the early church writings, no one was referencing these books. Again, there's tons of references to the books that we have in our Bible. There's no references to these other writings. And that's, again, evidence that they didn't exist at that time. The early church can't write about books that don't exist. And so these books came later from the Gnostics who were trying to make a claim that these are authoritative. 
And so if you, if you want to write a false gospel and you want people to believe it, are you going to say from Jimmy or are you going to say from Thomas? Because Thomas has an authority and you don't. So what you're going to do is you're going to write your book and you're going to attribute it to someone who didn't actually write it. So that's what happened with these gospels. They're written later in time and people are attributing them to earlier to try to trick people into believing this. And what's more is we actually have warnings about this happening in our scriptures. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 20, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy and he's warning him about a movement that's taking place. This is in the first century. Paul knows about this movement. He hears about this movement. It's taking place at that time. He says in verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter the opposing and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. And so what is this knowledge that they're going astray from? Well, if you go back to the word Gnostic, Gnostic is knowledge. That's the same exact thing he's telling them about. There's this false religion going around that people are starting to try to spread called knowledge or Gnosticism. And essentially what Gnosticism teaches is the exact opposite of what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that God is good, he created man, and man fell. The Gnostics teach that God is evil, that he subdues man, and Satan was good for trying to give to them knowledge. And so what the Gnostics want to do is they want to give people that same knowledge that Satan tried to give Adam and Eve. And so the Gnostics treat the body and the soul as two separate things. God says he created us body and soul, and it was good. The Gnostics say, no, 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 everything flesh is bad. Everything spiritual is good. And we know as Christians that we don't go to every spiritual thing. There are evil spirits. But the Gnostics say, no, everything spiritual is good. Trust all of it. Everything physical is bad. All of it. And so basically what this knowledge is trying to do, it's trying to free you from your physical body to be purely spiritual and so how do you do that? Well, you engage in all the spiritual things you can find out there. Again, in Jude, he warns about this again. There are people out there teaching licentiousness. Do whatever it is you want. Why? Because that's how you free your body. You get yourself out of your body by destroying it further. So it's sin doesn't matter. None of it matters because your body's already destroyed anyway. Just get rid of it. You want to be spiritual, not physical. And that's Gnosticism. That's what these Gospels and other writings are pointing to. And so clearly they are not teaching the same things as the Bible. They're from later in history in their writings. And the Bible itself warns against this teaching. Finally, the, there's some very strange and bizarre claims in this. Because again, if you're making up these stories, you're going to want to try to make it sound more fantastical. Whenever you read false teachings, there's always crazy things in them. So for example, in our Gospels, no one ever actually sees Christ raised. They come to the tomb and the tomb is empty. He rose that morning before they got there. But in the Gnostic Gospels, well, it turns out someone was there for it and they saw it take place. And so what they describe is that when Jesus comes out, he's around 60 feet tall, this big monstrous guy walking around, and that the cross came out behind him and started speaking to them. And so just very strange tales like that that come out of these Gnostic Gospels on top of the false teachings about God being evil and Satan being good. And so clearly these writings were never authoritative. No one ever considered them. They weren't there in the early church. They were added, they were written later, 
and no one cared about them because they're false teachings. That's why there were not any other manuscripts or anything anywhere. The manuscripts we do have are very few. There's three or four of them, and they're torn apart. They're, they're, if you try to read through them, most of the pages are missing. So you just get little snippets of what these people were trying to write. And so people will say, well, turn it out and say, well, see, you, you reject these writings. And that's what the church in the 4th century did, too. They rejected those writings, even though the early church followed it, without any evidence that the early church ever followed those writings. They're simply false gospels that someone wrote at some point. And so we didn't pick the gospels. We didn't pick this canon of scripture. God chose it. God wrote it. God provided it. And the church has always followed what God wrote and not something else. And so that's how we get our canon. In our last section, we're going to look at the transmission of the text. Because some people might say, okay, fine, maybe God did speak, maybe the canon's certain, but again, that was 2,000 years ago. How are you going to say that something from 2,000 years ago and something from today are the same thing? There's obviously corruption that's been translated over and over and over again. It's been uh, manipulated, it's been altered. You don't have what they originally had. And again, this is accusations that false religions will bring up, Mormonism and Muslims will say this exact same thing. The atheists will say this. The agnostics will say this. They'll say, maybe there is a God, but I don't trust the Bible because it's such an ancient text. There's no way that's actually from God. There's no way it's been preserved this long. So how do we know that we can actually trust these words? Another accusation brought up is that, well, these are ancient languages. People just don't understand them. They're probably mistranslating them. You don't speak Hebrew, you don't speak Greek, you don't speak Aramaic. That's what it's written in. And no one today knows those languages like they should because they've been dead languages for nearly 2,000 years. So how do we, your English translation's horrible, and you don't know what's actually written. And so let's go ahead and look at those claims. And we'll take that last one first, the biblical languages. Again, the Bible was written, written in Hebrew and Greek and in Aramaic. That's absolutely true. And it is also true that these languages are considered dead languages, but it's not the trump card that people want it to be. It's actually a huge benefit that these languages are dead. Because one thing that happens over time is language changes when it's used. Go read your King James Bible and then go read your NASB and you'll see that language changes over time. Why do these two books read differently? Because people speak differently in English than they did at another point. If no one's continuing to use these languages day to day, then the meanings of the words aren't going to ever change. And so it's actually a benefit to us that these are dead languages. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The Geneva Bible is a gnarly one. So if you go through and look at these languages, well, you know, sure, they're dead languages. They don't change. But how do you know what they mean? Well, God has actually gifted us to know language. There are people in this room that know multiple languages. How did you do that? You don't know one language and that's it for the rest of your life? You picked up another language somehow? How did you do that? Well, God gifted us to be able to understand language. We're unlike the rest of the creation. The rest of the creation doesn't have complex language. They can't just pick up new words, but we can. And so we can look to these languages and we can learn them. Not only can we learn them, but because they are God's authoritative word, there have been people from the beginning of the church till now who have studied these words. Just because they weren't used in everyday language doesn't mean they weren't used. The church fathers all throughout church history, the people guarding the church, they knew these languages. And again, the apostles knew these languages. They wrote in these languages. They spoke these languages. And then the church, the next generation, had the writings, and so they knew the languages all throughout church history. 
And so these languages were never lost. These languages were never dead to the point where no one knew about them. It's not like we're going back to the Egyptians and going, oh, we haven't, no one's seen this language for thousands of years. Let's try to figure out what's going on. But rather, the language has been passed down scholar to scholar to scholar throughout the generations. And so it's a benefit that it's a dead language and that the language never changes, but it doesn't mean we cannot know what's being spoken. We can know, and people do know. You and I might not know the intricacies of Hebrew or Greek, but people do know it and are able to translate it. And so again, that's why we get our translations. What the, what these scholars and what the critics are doing, uh, they're doing something called textual criticism. They're going through the original languages and they're translating it into our language or into Spanish or German or whatever else it might be. And so again, another accusation is, well, this is, you're just playing telephone with the Bible. You know, it's been going through a bunch of different people all these years, and it's changed. And they'll say, go to Google Translate and write a sentence and then translate it to a bunch of different languages, then back to English, and look how different the words are. That's not what took place. When they wrote the English, we'll stick with English because we speak English, when they wrote the KJV, they went from the original writings and wrote the KJV. When they wrote the NASB, they went from the original writings to the NASB. When they wrote the ESV, they went to the original writings and wrote the ESV. Each and every one of our translations is from the original writings translated once, not many times over. And so we can trust them. And so the question comes up, well, why, why are they different? You know, I read, I read even modern versions have different words in there. Well, there can be disagreements on the best way to translate into English, because again, there's, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping language to language. And again, anyone that speaks multiple languages knows this. There's phrases maybe that you might say in Spanish that you're not going to say in English it doesn't make sense in English, and the same thing back and forth. And so when you're translating from Greek and Hebrew into English, at times you know what it means, but it's like, how do I actually express that properly in English? And so you might get people coming up with different ideas of how to accurately represent a phrase into English. And so they'll, they'll, some of them will translate it more literal, word-for-word -word translations. Others will do phrase-by-phrase -phrase and try to get us the best translation. And so oftentimes when we go through the Bible, that's why we'll have multiple translations to see how different people have understood the words, or we might go back to the original Greek and say, okay, this is how our NSB says it, but if we look at the original Greek, here's a, a more thorough understanding of how they would use that word. And so we still have the originals that we can go to. So this language barrier is not really a problem. It doesn't prevent us from understanding God's word. And so we have the Bible from the original languages, but then again, how do we know there's no corruption. And so we have to look at the manuscripts. There are around almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts or fragments that have been found. And so the reason they're called fragments is because we often remember that time takes place. And so if I write something 2,000 years ago on parchment paper, in 2,000 years that's going to be really old and fragile and, and frail. And so there's many of them that are just fragments of writings that we have. But then there's also whole manuscripts as well. And so not everything was preserved perfectly, but over the thousands and thousands of pages we have, I think there's around, there's over a million pages of scripture that have been gathered together of all the different books. And again, going back to history, the way it was trans, was written is not in a controlled way, but in a dispersed way. If I want a version of the book of John, I copy the book of John onto my own piece of paper and I bring it over with me. And everyone's doing that all over the known world. And today what we do is we gather those all back together and we can piece it together. We can know exactly 
what is being said. And so one example of this is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is one of the most amazing examples because uh, if you guys aren't aware, there are many people that believe the second half of the book of Isaiah was written after Jesus died on the cross. And the reason for this is because it's so obviously talking about Jesus that if you go to a, a Jewish person and you read from Isaiah chapter 53 and you ask them, where did this come from? They'll say, that's obviously from your New Testament. It's talking about Jesus. And you say, no, this is actually from the Old Testament. And yes, it is talking about Jesus. And so people have often thought, well, clearly this had to have been written after. No one could have known this much about Jesus until after everything took place. And they just wrote it afterward and attributed it to Isaiah and tacked it on the end of Isaiah. Well, then the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, well, what do you know? We have the book of Isaiah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried and lost before Christ was born. And so we can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and we can look at our modern Bible and we can say, oh, look, they match. The same exact words. The same exact thing is said in those books. And so, again, that's an example of the Old Testament, but same thing with the New. What people will do is they'll try to claim that there's been changes, there's been alterations, there's been all these things that took place. But what we can do is we can take all these manuscripts from all the different centuries, 2,000 years of history, and we can compare them and see, oh, they, they've, saying this, they've been saying the same thing the whole time. No one altered them. They couldn't have. Because if I want to alter a book, I have to go to every single copy of it and alter all of them. No one can do that. No one's going to go all the way into the deep recesses of Asia and all the way into the Middle East, all the way up into Europe, all the way into Africa, all these different places where these manuscripts are written and change all of them. It can't happen. It's literally impossible. And so what's amazing is that God pre uh, preserved his word by persecuting his church. No one can alter it. You see, the Muslims claim that their scriptures are better because the Muslim scripture started the same way. It was copied and written all over. And then someone actually went through because it's only in the Middle East and they destroyed all the copies and they had one master copy and said, this is the real one. Well, how do you know? What if it said something different and the guy that did that altered it? We would never know because he had the only copy. But we can't do that with the Bible. No one can say, here's the master copy because we can go through and say, hmm, does this match what everyone else had? Does this look like what everyone else was passing around? No? Oh, obviously you made it up. So God preserved his word by persecuting his church and spreading it all throughout the world. And then today we gather it all back together and we have more information than ever before to validate that what we have today is what was written by the apostles. And yet people still deny it. And so when we do that, when we gather up all these manuscripts, the, the, um, the scholars will gather them up and they'll do the work of seeing, comparing and contrasting them, seeing what differences might exist in there. And there's a guy named uh, Bart Ehrman. If you guys haven't heard his name, he is a textual critic. His whole career is studying the Bible, and he's an atheist. He doesn't believe any of it, but he loves digging through it. He started off as a Christian, and he, in college, became an atheist. But he still studies the Bible. He still does the textual criticism. And so he goes to a lot of the atheist conventions and talks about how he doesn't believe in God. But there are two things that he holds that must be true that he hates that atheists deny. One is that Jesus Christ absolutely existed. It's a historical fact, and you'll be laughed out of any scholarship if you deny Jesus Christ existed. And the second is that we can absolutely know what the original authors wrote. 
there hasn't been corruption to the point where we can't understand it or know. And he's the guy that denies Christ, but he knows for a fact that we can validate the scriptures without a doubt. Any scholarship that goes against that is laughed at because of the amount of overwhelming evidence that we can know what the scriptures say. Yes. <laughs> and so when we look at the, the manuscripts um, and when they do those comparisons, they, the, what the one thing they're looking for is variance. And variance are just where one manuscript differs from another. And what, when, what, what happens when we look at that over the, over a million pages of text, about, there are about 400,000 variants across them, but these variants aren't serious variants. About 99% of those variants are irrelevant to the understanding of the text. And what, uh, what that makes more sense when we understand what a variant is. So if I make a spelling mistake, that's a variant. Um, there's another uh, variant where someone can be, there's similar word endings. So if I have caption and corruption, and I'm writing through, and I'm copying over here, and I read caption, and I write caption, and I see the shun at the end of corruption, and I write from there, because I'm just quickly copying. Oh, I missed a few words there. Well, that's not malicious. I didn't try to leave anything out, but I just happened because the similar word ending skipped something. Every now and then you'll get a line skipped, but all of these we can actually validate because of how many copies there are. We can go through and say, oh, this guy misspelled that word. How do you know? Because a thousand other people spelled it correctly. Oh, this guy skipped a line. How do you know? Because a thousand other people wrote that line in. And so there's variants, sure, but they're not malicious variants, and they're not variants that ever change the meaning of the text or that make it so we can't know what the original authors wrote. And that's the benefit of having these thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the scriptures, that we can actually compare them, and even though there are variants, they don't actually hinder us from knowing what God intended us to know. Now, there are a few meaningful variants, and a meaningful variant simply is that there's a, a larger piece changed or something like that. And usually most of these variants are that there's something added into the text. And so to get your mind wrapped around this, imagine you're in the early church and I get the Gospel of John. And so I'm copying the Gospel of John and I have my copy of it. And so, well, this is my copy. I'm not expecting anyone else to read from it. So I'm going to start writing in some notes. And so then now a hundred years later, my grandchild or great-grandchild is like, this is kind of getting old. I'm going to make my own copy of it. And what they're going to be writing down, they're going to say, well, these are on the sidelines, but I don't want to lose anything, so I'm just going to copy that down too. And then a hundred years later, someone gets that, and there's no side notes. He just kind of wrote it all as one, and so they copy down the whole thing too. And so what happens is my notes get added in as well. And so one example of this is in John chapter 8. Uh, there's the woman caught in adultery. And so if you notice the ending of John chapter 7, and John chapter 8, verse 12, is a continuous story, and this is kind of just shoved in the middle there. And so I forget the century that the, the manuscript first entered this, but they actually know exactly where this was entered in. They have the exact manuscript of where this was entered into John. And so they know that point because of earlier manuscripts, and if you read through your Bible in John chapter 8, a lot of them should indicate this is not in the earliest of manuscripts. And so oftentimes when we have these meaningful variants, Again, it wasn't even malicious. Someone's writing in their notes, and people don't want to lose the information, so they just copy it all down. And so you have some of those pieces that were added in here and there, but they're few and far between. And again, when we read through John chapter 8, it doesn't change the meaning of anything. It's not like Christ suddenly didn't die on the cross, but rather you just have this story kind of inserted into the middle of the text. And so even when we go to the meaningful variants, one, we can know they're there because of how 
vast the manuscript tradition is. And two, they don't contradict anything else we see in the Bible. Oftentimes it's just personal notes that people would add in to the text. And so again, not even malicious, but just noticeable variants. And so oftentimes you don't see a diminishing of the text. You see somewhat of an expansion of the text over time. Another way this happens is that people would expand on the name of Christ. And so it would be Jesus in one manuscript, and the next one would be the Lord Jesus, and the next one would be the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And so they just kind of expand on the name of Christ as the time goes on, just as out of reverence to Christ. And so it's not changing the meaning of the text in any way. It's simply just them adding their own note of how much they revere Christ. Exactly, they're magnifying his name. Yes. And so as we look at the textual tradition or the t transmission of the text over time, we'll see that God preserved his word. Every accusation against the Bible falls flat. Every accusation does not stand up to scrutiny. In the historians, the scholars, they all know that what we have is the original writings. There's no doubt about it. And so when you hear people bring up these accusations, know that they are false accusations. With all of this, we know that we have God's word, not a fake, not an alteration, but the whole scripture as God intended for us to have it. And again, some of these facts about the transmission in the canon make some people feel uncomfortable because some people do just kind of want that Bible out of the sky that they can just say this is the final and ultimate one. We don't have to worry about translations. We don't have to worry about people making mistakes. We don't have to worry about copying errors. But just be comforted in knowing that this is how God chose to preserve his word. Because again, when people make mistakes, we can spot the mistakes. But if there was simply one text, we would never be able to catch any mistakes. And so God preserved his word in the way that he chose to do it. And so we can be assured of the following. We can be assured that God has given to us his word and that he has preserved it according to his sovereignty. It wasn't outside of the plan of God for the text to come to us in this way. It was exactly as he planned it to preserve his word. We also have to note that God is not so weak that he can command us to live according to his word and then fails to give us that very word. He's not going to say, go out and teach them all that I have commanded, and then we're going to lose his commands. God is more powerful than that. God is more capable than that, to give to his people his word in every generation. And so God spoke through the apostles, and he spoke through the prophets. He inspired the words of scripture. He scattered his church to preserve the word. He gifted us to understand language. He preserved the manuscripts and fragments so we could gather them together. So that way every generation knows exactly what God has said all along. We can trust in his word. And so don't treat the scriptures like any other book. It's not like any other book. It is wholly unique. It is something completely other than anything we have in our libraries. It is not something that's just filled with good advice or something that we can sort of uh, design our lives around. But it's the very word of God, and it can be trusted, and it must be followed. Amen? Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for this morning as we looked at how trustworthy your word is, God. God, as we look at the history and we look at what you have done through your church, God, it is just astounding how perfectly your plan has fallen into place. God, we are not your people left of our own on our own devices. 
We are not people abandoned by you, God, but you intended to speak to us through your word, through the prophets, and through the apostles. And so you, out of your perfect and sovereign plan, preserved your word for us. God, we thank you for that, that we can have your word, that we can trust it, that we can know it, and that we can live according to it to serve you, God. God, you gave the command to the, to the disciples to preach your word, to disciple the nations into your word, and to teach all, to obedience to all that you have commanded. And God, say that is exactly what we want to continue. We want to teach obedience to all that you have commanded. And God, what is amazing is that you have enabled our obedience to this. Without you, none of this is possible. Without you, we would not have salvation in Christ Jesus. Without you, we would not have the forgiveness of our sins. Without you, we would not be your church, your people. And without you, we would not have your word, God. And so we thank and praise your holy name, God. Amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.